0: I'm here with Roger Ehrenberg, who is from Information Arbitrage. He's a uh, Wall Street guy that's turning into a, or, or is now, an, an investor in the tech scene in, in New York. Um, I've been reading Roger's blog for quite a while, and he has some pretty interesting thoughts. Um, Roger, thanks for joining us.
1: Yeah, thank you, Adrian. Happy to be here.
0: Maybe you can just tell us a little bit about you and who you are and what you want to be when you grow up. <laughs>
1: well, still trying to figure that part out, <laughs> but in terms of... Uh, where I've been, so, you know, I was um, I was on Wall Street for gee, over 17 years, um, starting in 87, right a, right around a crash, and I was in M&A, and then for four years I did M&A, focusing on the financial services sector, and then got into um, capital structuring, which was kind of designing these um, structured capital raising instruments for large corporations. And then did you meet I, Mike Milken, I did not I did not his his heyday was slightly before I came onto the scene, and of course he was uh he was based out in l a and um I ended up going to work for city in the old city, the real city in New York City, so unfortunately, no, I've never met Mike, but he certainly was dominating the discussion at the time that i that I got into the business hmm. um and then I went to business school for a couple of years while you know working working for uh, for Citi. And then I went into derivatives, which was not not at all what I had expected I would do. I was much more thinking of going buy side, um, but kind of my mentor at Citi had kind of insisted that I meet with a global head of derivatives, and you know their view was that somebody with my kind of corporate finance background, not from sales and trading, would be actually very effective in advising large corporations on. You know, kind of all manner of risk management strategies, and you know, I kind of took that bet and ended up being right. And I loved being in the derivatives markets and, you know, advising large corporates in the 90s was a, a great time to be doing that. As you know, the derivatives business just you know increased exponentially, and corporate use of derivatives became commonplace. And so I did that from you know 93 in that city all the way through the beginning of 99, and then when the Travelers merger happened, I didn't like the way the the culture of the price changed, and then went to Deutsche to run um, Equity Group structuring and origination, and did that through the end of '02. and that was terrific. It was a, just a great, great team, great culture, just real kind of can-do attitude, very exciting time to be on the street. And then I was asked to take over a trading business called TV Advisors, which was a multi-strategy hedge fund platform that was a combination of running George's own capital and running $2 billion of client capital. So I was brought in to kind of institutionalize that business and build a risk management culture and an institutional infrastructure around it. And I did that for a few years. And then at the end of that, which was end of 2004, um, I decided to... Leave and to really change my life. And that's when I went to early stage technology investing.
0: How come you decided to leave?
1: So I was asked to restructure the business. Um, the bank decided that uh, the regulatory risk associated with wanting third party money, given the structure of the business, wasn't worth it since we made the vast majority of our profits from pure trading on our proprietary capital that I started to spin out my best managers. Uh, So QVT, uh, know, big New York-based fund, Gundara, based in Hong Kong, GSA, which is a top-performing stat fund, Altima, which is a special fits fund based out of London. And uh, once I did that and kind of got rid of the client side of the business and it reverted to being a pure prop trading platform, you know, they said, kind of, what do you want to do? And it was a natural inflection point for me to consider, what did I want to do? And, you know, I really always been a lover of technology and kind of consumed massive amounts of technology in my positions on the street and in these kind of complex ends of the uh, kind of financial product spectrum. And I had started doing some angel investing while I was still at Deutsche and decided, you know, it's been a great run. And I had a tremendous time, met great people, learned a ton, and decided I wanted to try my hand being on my own.
0: I've actually never felt cool. with someone like you. I mean, you've really been out there and done battle on Wall Street. You've
1: hand to hand combat. The
0: one, the one comment that I've heard from um, one guy who um, was, was, I guess he was in it for a little while, but basically got out, and he's, he's a fairly high profile guy. What he told me was he felt like that most of the, the Wall Street space was just like pretty unethical and just aggressive, and um, he found it really or rather unpleasant. Would you would you agree with that?
1: Um, no, I think that's a very uh, it's easy to use a very broad brush to paint Wall Street and kind of that that negative light. I, I didn't find it that way. Are, are there pockets of that? Absolutely. Are there people that themselves are unethical and acting? You know inappropriate appropriate ways, sure. But you know, the vast, vast, vast majority of the people that I worked with at City and at Deutsche, as well as you know, friends at other firms, you know, did business the right way. And you know, did they want to make money? Sure. Did I want to make money? Of course. But the uh, that didn't go before giving the right advice to our clients. And if we could get you know, get paid in a way that we felt good about through doing the right things for our clients, it's kind of a win-win. And I think that's. That's the way I saw most of the street you know, in my tenure. All right, uh, okay. uh,
0: you, you did leave. Oh, i got okay. an Do you hear an echo on the line? I don't no. Okay, maybe it'll go away. Um, you did leave. I mean, w- what were your reasons for for wanting to move on rather than staying in the space?
1: Sure. So, you know, when I, after this, you know, this job, um, of running, you know, a six billion dollar RIA being reporting to the head of the equity division two steps away from Joe Ackerman, you know, I looked around. I didn't really see a role that I wanted. You know, I had been I been a banker. I had, you know, been a derivatives professional, you know, at a, at a very high level, and then ran this massive hedge fund. So what other job is there on the street short of running... You know, running the equity division or running the whole firm that would have been exciting, stimulating, whatever. And honestly, I didn't want either of those jobs if they were available to me, which they weren't. So, it was really just a very natural inflection point for me where, you know, I had been fortunate to, you know, make a few bucks in my time on the street and had the ability to go and take personal risk and to really re- reinvent myself in ways that uh, both kind of balance my personal and professional objectives and kind of gave me a rebirth. And, you know, these last five years, you know, I think arguably I've become a, you know, pretty respected venture investor, I mean, from nowhere. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's taken five years of, you know, doing some good stuff, making some mistakes, learning from them, you know, writing you know, writing a blog, learning how to really become an internet denizen, and just really immersing myself in the community to the point now where I'm part of it.
0: Hmm. fun, <laughs> and, and here we are talking today. <laughs> um, I'm interested from from what you've learned from Wall Street. Have, have, have much of what you learned there um, helped you in the startup community?
1: That's a that's a great question, Adrian. You, you know, I think probably more than I would have expected. Uh, how to build high-performance teams, how to assess talent, how to network, how to manage relationships, how to analyze complex situations, Um, those are the things that have been invaluable in my transition from Wall Street to kind of the venture-investing startup incubation community.
0: Have, have they been really valuable? I mean, if you hadn't learned those things and you were just starting out, you know, when you were a fresh-faced 22-year-old kid and you had the money that you have now, would you still have, I mean, you might have been a little bit slower, but, but you still would have got there, or do you think it made a, a tremendous difference to getting to where you are now? Mm-hmm. I, I, I think it,
1: I think both from a skill set perspective, it made a tremendous difference, and also the fact that I had uh, achieved at the level I did on the street and had the reputation and the network of relationships. Clearly, you know kind of jump started me in in this new business because people took me seriously, even if I didn't necessarily have the domain expertise when I was first starting out right. in the, you know in the venture capital arena.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it takes so, time to,
1: yeah, I'm sorry.
0: No, sorry, go on. I
1: was gonna say, you know it takes time to kind of build one's you know tech shops where you're viewed as somebody who understands as opposed to somebody who's just money. Right. And, you know, I worked very hard over this, you know, over this period to really, um, connect with entrepreneurs and to really understand the, the technologies, um, underpinning a lot of the companies I invest in. So, you know, it's a little bit old dog new tricks, but I've learned some new tricks.
0: So, Um. One other thing that I'm interested to ask about just on the Wall Street topic before we move on. Um, you're obviously an M&A in Wall Street. Um, do you think some of your learnings there are going to apply to Internet stuff? And are you using that or, or do you plan to?
1: I, mean, I would say it does from a tactical standpoint. Um, you know, certainly the kinds of things that acquirers look for, the way to, to present a company, um, creation of key metrics. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's helpful. Uh, honestly, M&A is technically very easy, you know, except for kind of the some more of the arcane tax rules that uh, heavily impact the way deals are structured. Straight down the middle of the fairway, M&A is not complicated. The stuff that's really interesting are the the strategies and the tactics, and also the you know the relationships and the ability to open doors. You know, if you look at the the highest-profile M&A bankers. You know, it's not that they're necessarily structuring gurus. It's that they have an immense amount of trust and credibility with decision makers at potential acquirers and potential targets. So, I think that's something also that my kind of legacy relationships with large corporates has been very, very helpful with. And then, um, you know, the time that I have spent. Building credibility in the entrepreneurial community has given, and with venture firms, has given me kind of the other side of the equation.
0: Okay, um, so now you're—are you an angel investor or a VC investor? Like, where do you sit?
1: Um, <laughs> kind of right in between. Um, you know, I've done, I've made, you know, thirty-five investments. Uh, since I started doing this Um, I've I've led rounds I've followed in rounds I've generally with my strongly performing companies I uh, continue to participate in follow on rounds so my behavior is very much uh, that of a small venture fund so obviously to this point I've been investing using my own personal capital not partner capital um, but I am. I am in fact going to be starting a small venture fund, where I will have healthy capital, which is something I've considered for you know quite some time. But I'm going to be doing that shortly.
0: Why have you decided to do that?
1: Uh, because it, well, you know, I aside from investing, I also incubate, and I've been incubating a um, a trading company for the past 18 months, and it's kind of at the intersection of the stuff that I used to do and the stuff that I've done over the past five years, so it's kind of a mix of quantitative trading and um, semantic analysis, natural language processing, kind of interesting data, database architecture to solve very complex problems in the, the analysis of text for trading. Um, when I kind of started this project, it's something I I don't really talk about very often. I don't really blog about it. I don't... It's just something where there's not a PR benefit to it. I'm, it's just something that I'm doing myself. Um, but, you know, word kind of got out kind of quietly in the community, and the composition of my personal deal flow really started to change, where I had been you know, receiving, kind of classic FinTech and then tons of, you know, digital media and ad tech stuff, which is principally where I've invested. But I started to get a lot of really interesting uh, business plans in the sphere of kind of big data. So tools, technologies for the management of massive amounts of data. So database architecture, high performance computing, anomaly detection, predictive analytics, all this kind of stuff. Stuff that directly relates to the work that my company, my trading company, is doing. So, um, and these deals, because of their strategic nature, if they didn't feel like angel deals. It felt like I wanted to be bigger and more significant with these companies and to potentially have a joint investment and business relationship with them. Um where there would be kind of this discipline of only investing in companies where my trading company could kind of use the technologies, use the analytics, use the data uh, in its own in its own business. So what I decided to do is to um, identify Potential limited partners who themselves were strategic, strategic in the sense that they were interested in the same kinds of things that I'm interested in from the standpoint of my trading company, who would want to potentially see the filter deal flow from the fund, and who themselves could be early betas, potential early paying customers, and in certain cases, potential acquirers of these businesses. And, you know, when I kind of set out with the idea of, um, uh, you know, wanting to do this fund, there was no way in a million years I was going to go on some 12-month fundraising tour, going to pensions and endowments and kind of doing the standard thing. Firstly, because I'm not a, you know, I'm not a, you know, multiple-year institutional VC. I'm, my reputation is very much as a kind of this super angel investor type person and so LP Capital I didn't think would be there for me and honestly I didn't want it because they couldn't be helpful to me they it, it, they would probably very heavily restrict the kinds of things I wanted to do. So I ended up going to a series of strategics who know me personally, trust me and at the same time have the interest.
0: Uh,
1: so one of the largest data companies in the world, a massive trading company, massive hedge fund, um, some prominent uh, venture capital investors, a few very prominent entrepreneurs who have built companies and sold companies in the big data realm like that. So where kind of LPs and advisors intersect, where every single one of my investors is effectively an advisor too because of their domain knowledge. There's no kind of dead money in the fund. It's all active money. So and
0: money means because I, 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 you know, I'm unlike so far removed from Wall Street, so you have no idea. So dead money, I guess, that means companies or pe- people that invest that don't involve. They just like sit back and, and the money's being invested. Whereas you're, when you say active money, you're saying people with actual understanding of the space and potentially the ability to add value. Precisely. Right. Okay.
1: That's exactly right. And, you know, when I kind of raised this possibility with this, you know, small group of kind of trusted strategics, the idea really resonated with them. And, uh, you know, I had the idea three, four months ago, and um, I'm doing it. Cool. So it's going to be, you know, again, doing the very early stuff that I do in my capacity as a personal investor Um, but with, you know, greater firepower to potentially, you know, lead deals, be more significant equity owner of these companies, and then to to really dig in and assist with the the business. And, you know, because of my Rolodex and the ability to help on business development and the fact that I've got, you know, an associate that helps these early companies with their kind of financial modeling and their budgets and their plans, you know, it's just a very hands-on approach.
0: So let me exception. ask then, like you've, you've built up a good reputation, you've obviously done a lot of good. What happens, you raise this money, what happens if it like all goes down in a big ball of flames and you lose everyone's money? Like what happens to you then? Are you like shut out from Wall Street and you're done or does that like accept it and then you go on and just start another thing?
1: Um, that's a great question, Adrian. I have no idea. I mean, you know, my motto has always been failure is not an option and I don't really, uh, you know, given the Five and a half years of experience I've gotten doing this. I feel like I've learned enough to kind of take a risk managed approach to building the portfolio and company selection. And the fact that the, given the strategic nature of the companies in which I'm going to be investing, and the fact that I've got an operating company that can actually do diligence these companies and be a user of their IP. together with the strategic LPs substantially de-risks the investments. So I actually think it's, uh, you know, the likelihood of success is very high.
0: I mean, strategically it all makes sense. I'm just wondering, like, from the point of view of Silicon Valley, right, it's okay to fail a couple of times in Silicon Valley because you just dust yourself off and and get going and it's not like you're going to be like, locked out of everything in the Valley. I mean, people people accept that as long as you, you handle things right. Um, I was just kind of interested in the perception on how that might happen in, in Wall Street if, if, if a similar thing happens.
1: I'm not on Wall Street. I live in, in New York, York, but I'm not on Wall Street. Street. And, you know, yeah. my money is... And in fact, you know, most of the money, making money on the investment is secondary. What they're really most interested in are the uh, the insights, to oh, really? being on the bleeding edge of technologies that they can actually use in their operating businesses, which has a much greater scale effect than the return on any investment that they would be making.
0: Mm. That's killer. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So, so, even then, everything could burn down, and as long as they're getting their insights from it, like you know, then they then they've done hugely well. Exactly. Mm. Fascinating. Okay. Um, You mentioned uh, ad tech. Have you been doing investing in the ad tech space?
1: Have I? Yeah.
0: Really? What kind of stuff have you been investing in?
1: So, um, yes, are you familiar with invite media? No, I'm not. Yeah, so there's um, a bunch of companies in the kind of ad optimization, um, ad, you know, ad optimization, ad server space that I've invested in. And, as well as some companies that Are less techy, but have very scalable platforms that are heavily used by the big brands and by the big advertisers. Like Buddy Media is a great example, and their Facebook Pages application. But yeah, no. So, ad tech is 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 a very, very important space for me, and something that really um, is a place where I. Can really add value because it's, you know, the stuff I invest in tends to be very, very data-driven, very quantitative. So, you know, it's... Um, most of the stuff I do, Adrian, has a heavy data component, either directly in that it, it is consuming and extracting meaning from massive, massive data, or it is something where the data... Exhaust actually can be, and the metadata can be used in another way away from kind of the core strategy of the business. And that's kind of a unifying theme, and so ad tech is, uh, is great for that.
0: Mm. No, I mean, I know the ad tech space pretty well. A um, direct, response, direct response area I spent a fair amount of time and, um So we probably have quite a lot of mutual friends. <laughs> Undoubtedly. Um. <clears throat> So actually, on that point, so one of my one of my um, closest friends that uh, we talk a lot about um, sort of where we're both going to go in the future, and um, he, he's made uh, quite a bit of money, and I've made some money. Um, we're we're sort of like thinking about well, you know, do we need to work with angels, VCs, and all that sort of stuff? Because um, for a guy like him, he's really good with operations and um, keeping sort of the mechanics of a company running well. Um, and, I mean, I, I'm pretty good at the, the biz dev side and the bigger picture and that kind of stuff. Um, and we're kind of looking at this and saying, well, do we really need to bring on... I mean, the, the costs are going down for starting companies. Um, there's there's more and more angel investing happening. It's it's smaller amounts that are being invested. It's forcing the entrepreneurs to be frugal and all, all that sort of stuff. Like, the the, the the cost for starting a company overall has just dropped dramatically. Um, and, and so I, I understand that it makes sense that angels can do more investing, but is it getting to the point now where individual entrepreneurs can just go and incubate a bunch of companies and see what works and then instead of handing, we have the, the 10 companies, right? The, the standard VC model where five of them you lose your money and then three of them or two or three of them you get some money back and then and then one of them is a slam dunk and you know one of them does okay but you, you make all your returns on the slam dunk. Are the barriers to entry getting low enough now that individual entrepreneurs can go and do that stuff themselves rather than even bringing in investments?
1: I think it really depends on the the nature of the business, Adrian. I think you're right. You know, the cost of enabling technologies has plummeted. So the ticket to hacking something together that you can then prototype and even put out there, you know, and and alpha is, you know, the barriers are just so low. Um, The reality, though, is that probably most of the entrepreneurs I know don't have the money to even do that multiple times, that even though the cost of enabling technologies has gone down so much, it still costs money. Even the opportunity cost of not working costs money. And to work on a problem nights and weekends, as opposed to saying, I'm really devoting myself to this 150% of the time, you you know, leads to a very long, slow, painful death cycle. So if somebody is really wicked passionate about something and decides this is really what they want to do, then most of the time, given the youth and the kind of lack of bankroll that these early entrepreneurs have, it doesn't matter how low the cost of enabling technologies is, the opportunity cost of not working is too high.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So they need something. Um, I think what I've seen is that you know, angels have become the first stop for many, many, many businesses that may or may not need venture capital down the road, but where you know a half a million dollars that's either based on milestones or where you know there's an agreement on you know very concrete metrics that that need to be hit at points in time, where by triggering these by hitting these metrics, you can, you are then in a position to either raise additional angel capital or potentially do a venture round if the capital needs of the business warrant that. Even in, you know, many of these uh, technology-oriented businesses that are very inexpensive to actually hack together, the fact is you still need a sales force. You still need some headcount to actually get the product out there. You know, not everything is um, a viral online application. In fact, relatively few are viral online applications. So, you do need more money to really enter that rapid growth phase because you need to see it on the street. Um, So raising a million, two million is probably going to become necessary to really become successful. So I see it as being an evolutionary process, Adrian, where, yes, a lot of businesses may never need venture money, but will most likely need some degree of angel money? I think the answer is yes.
0: Okay. Okay. Um, you wrote on your blog, uh, you talked about some of the trends that you see happening. I mean, I'm interested maybe if you could tell us a little bit about some of your thoughts on where you see things heading from your perspective.
1: Yeah, sure. So, you know, I touched on this, you know, this kind of big data fame and I, I do think that it's... Uh, did you
0: read the book, Super Crunches? I did not. Oh, it would seem like it would be right up your alley. Um, it's all about like using using data to analyze and stuff So, a lot of guys in my community have found it very useful.
1: No. You should, will you send me the link? Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I mean there's there's so much to read out there, Adrian. I'm just I'm just fighting to stay afloat right now with everything that's going on. Um so
0: the, the way that recommendation originally came from is a guy named PV Cannon um, who runs a company called 24-7 out in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. It's uh, distributed call center stuff. and I don't know, six, 7,000 seats or something like that. they are probably a lot more now. Um, and he said that book was sort of set the direction for their entire company. So you know, I'll, I'll send you a link.
1: No, I appreciate it. Um, yeah, so you know, there's kind of the, the inexorable rise of this, this kind of wall of data. And managing it... Making sense of it is only going to continue becoming more acute. Whether you're talking about, you know, anti-terrorism uh, in government, or you know, fraud detection in the financial services space, or you know, data privacy in healthcare, everything from figuring out who's
0: a potential terrorist on a plane, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. I've been. Uh, did have you read the book The Looming Tower? No, I haven't. Well, I mean that is that is an unbelievably damning kind of uh, expose of how you know we in the U.S. had access to information which it would have been quite easy to um, have stopped the September 11th attacks, but because of a lack of coordination and a lack of unified systems and poor kind of horizontal communication across agencies, it yeah, the siloed information fills us literally.
0: Pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, you would think that at this point in this day and age that we would be able to manage data a lot better. And I mean, just recently we had the the, the Nigerian shoe guy in the, in in, the, in Detroit. Right? You would think at this point now that all of that stuff can be mined and put together properly. But I guess the analytics aren't still aren't there yet. Well, you know, a lot of the
1: analytics. I mean, it's it's getting there. There's no question it's getting there, but you, you know, it's if once you have the information, what, what do you do with it? I mean, and that's part that's it's not a technology problem; it's an organizational structure and a political problem.
0: Um, but who do you think's leading the way on that? Is that is it coming? out? I mean, I would have thought if that can be best leverage, it'll be the Wall Street guys making money on it. Or are we going to see it in the fighting terrorism? Is it going to be in credit card fraud? Like, who do you think's leading the way on that sort of stuff?
1: Well what you just described is kind of the raison d'etre of my fund <clears throat> is that is that you know we're really focused on enabling technologies that can be applied horizontally across these different domains it's relevant for all the domains it's relevant for Wall Street in terms of trade identification it's relevant for government for finding you know patterns that would lead to potential um, dangerous factors and then Financial fraud, you know, data, data fraud. So there's no question that you know, a, a an, an effective IDS system that moves beyond kind of the classic rules-based systems, those learnings could be applied broadly across the three sectors we discussed. And that's yes, I mean, I think that is a huge trend. But it's it's not just the analysis. It's then okay, you need to you need to manage a massive and rapidly growing corpus of data. So kind of classic relational database structures are not necessarily the best answer in a real-time world. So what, you know, what are new frontiers in, in, in database architecture that can help manage this massive amount of data when you want to access much of that data in real time. And, you know, these, these are the kinds of, and then of course, you know, analytics, right? So, how do you extract meaning, not just in terms of um, looking at things at the packet level, but looking at things thematically over time? How can you look for patterns in data? You know, what are kind of the next frontiers of language analysis that enable us to identify events?
0: Kind of a you know, I used, of at Oracle, so I used to work at Oracle, so it's just on the side. If I can help you and hook you up with some of the guys at Oracle at, at pretty high level on this stuff, let me know.
1: No, I, I appreciate that. I'm actually in my in my new fund. I'm going to be backing a um, a new database company, um, and that's a, that's a place where I'm spending a lot of time because the um, you know we are addressing some very very complex problems in my trading company, and kind of conventional solutions don't work well. Hmm. So you know that's one of the neat things about kind of having this this capital is to be able to go and really do some some groundbreaking work in these you know, highly relevant areas.
0: That's cool stuff. Um, <clears throat> let's see, now, what I want to ask you about... Um, well, let's maybe let me, let me take a couple of steps back. Um, if I want to raise money from you, how do I do that? <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, you know, if you look at my portfolio... I have been introduced through some channel to virtually all of my deals. So it is very rare, almost impossible, for someone to submit a deal through my blog and have that be a deal that gets done. It doesn't mean I don't want to see it, and it doesn't mean that I don't very much appreciate the opportunity, but what I've found is that the, the filtering that my network provides the combination of deal quality and domain focus is very, very powerful, not to mention kind of the trusted recommendation. So, you, you know.
0: We don't know each other, so I'm blown out the water. Okay, you're blowing me off. I get it, I get it. I'll, I'll deal with it, you know. I can I'm going to have to, like, go into recovery for a while. But I'll, I'll that know, so. is, That's
1: not it, though, way I mean, because you know what? I'd bet you anything that if you went on LinkedIn and you searched for me and you saw how you are related to me that you could guess me.
0: Yeah, Probably. But let's, okay, so let's, you know, so for the guys here listening to this that don't know you, like, okay, firstly, you've got to find a way to get to know Roger. Um, so that's the first step. Now let's say um, someone found a way, let's say I, I look on LinkedIn and there's, there's, you know, two steps in the middle or one step in the middle, there's someone that we know and, you know, both of us trust that guy. So uh, I, that, guy, that guy now is, is, is acting as a reference for me to come and get money from you. What's then the next step?
1: Uh, so the next step is to. You know, yeah,
0: listen, I, I am couching this intentionally in uncomfortable terms because this is how um, a lot of entrepreneurs are looking at it. It's like, how can I come and get money from that guy? Now, obviously, you don't want that. You want me to come to you and say, "Well, you know, could you give me some advice on this particular business idea?" Right? You know, you want you want a soft sell, and the entrepreneur just wants the money. <laughs>
1: um, no, this isn't uncomfortable at all. Actually, this is real world, and honestly, I don't have that much time right now for the whole. Kind of mentoring thing outside of my existing portfolio companies. So I'm focused on the money too. If I'm not really interested in the business, I don't really have a lot of time right now to be, you know, sitting down for an hour with every person that wants wants to do that. I mean, the sad reality is, I wish I could. I can't. You know, I get dozens and dozens and dozens of emails every week. Um, You know, okay. So just to to follow on your question. So what do you do? So we know somebody in common you've got an executive summary, you've got an investor deck, okay? Mm -hmm. You say, you you, what you'd optimally like to do is go to that person that knows us that we have in common, go to them and say, hey, can you please do an email intro? Okay, so let's say you know um, Tony Conrad at True Ventures, Mm -hmm. okay? And you know that True Ventures isn't going to do this deal for whatever reason, and you say, you know, hey Tony, could you introduce me to Roger? Understand, you guys, you know, you're, you're on LinkedIn, you have a relationship, whatever. Tony says, hey, I know Adrian, really good guy, cool business idea, you should talk to him. Well, if somebody I know in my world says, hey, you should talk to somebody, then I'm going to talk to them, whether just I will out of out of courtesy. And you send along an investor deck and an executive summary. I tell you that and then we have a conversation. And if you're geographically close, you'll come into my office we'll chat. If not, we'll have a call. Um, And I will know very, very quickly if it's something I want to pursue. It's, uh, you know, for me, I'm very, you know, you say, you're Australian, you're blunt. Well, I'm from New York, I'm blunt. And, you know, I also appreciate that kind of mealy-mouth, BS answers don't help anybody. So I'll be like, you know, decided, hey, this really resonates with me. This fits well with these three other things that I'm doing. And another thing is, you know, if you knew me well you'd know that I like to invest in clusters where I've got themes and I like to invest around existing investments so I can kind of solidify a position in this sector and get the network effect of my companies working together. And that's worked very well for me. So, you know, doing some homework on me, I'm you know, eminently due diligenceable, eminently uh, researchable on Google um, and the various social networks, so you should come meeting me with some having done homework, not just you know how to pitch your business to me, but what are the kinds of things that might be my might represent my hot buttons, um, and that's really it. So, you know, the key thing it's
0: is to listen to this interview.
1: That's correct.
0: <laughs> so let's say they come in. They know. Or, I mean, let's put. You know, I'll put me in the hot seat. So I've you know studied. I know. I know all about you. I know you like. I don't know. You know, I'll make something up. You, know, you like fishing, and we can talk about some great fishing trip you went on or whatever. We get some things in common, and it, it's it's relevant to your themes. What happens then?
1: Well, do, do I like your business or not?
0: So um, we got past all those things, my ears are open. So. What? We assume that you do like my business. What happens then?
1: Well, if I like um, I'm,
0: I'm not picking you for money here. I don't need it. Um, I'm interested just in understanding the process.
1: Sure. If I, if I like your business, it depends on how much capital you're looking for and do I think your plan makes sense. So that's the thing. So if I like your business, then the question is, does your plan make sense? Because a lot of times I like a business, but the plan doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. And then it gets to the point of, okay, can the plan be – either restructured, reposition, refined to make it more consistent with what I believe is the right plan, is the entrepreneur coachable? I mean, do they want a value-added kind of strategic angel, or do they really just want money? And if they just want money, then they should get it from somebody else. If they want it from somebody who is going to challenge them, support them, and mention them, then I'm a good person to talk to.
0: So you're one of these tough love guys, eh? Uh,
1: You know, you can talk to any of the CEOs that I've backed and on whose boards I sit. I'm extremely supportive, but at the same time I'm, I'm honest. And I want to be helpful. And, you know, if I think something's not making sense, I'm going to say, hey, I don't think this makes sense. But because of the fact that the only people I back are coachable, they will take that the right way and they will know the spirit in which it's given. So I'm not a meddler but you're going to know my opinion.
0: right? Which, which makes sense. So let's say um, you, you've liked everything, I've shown you my stuff, we get along, you feel like I'm coachable. What happens then? Okay,
1: depending on the size of the financing need, and this is me talking, now, is this me talking from an angel perspective or from my new little fund perspective?
0: Um, why don't we do both?
1: Okay. <coughs> it's from an angel perspective, invariably, I am not going to represent the whole round. Personally, I don't do that because I think um, it's important to have a a small syndicate of strategic investors in a given domain. I think if you're going to go for angel financing and you're going to spend the time and and endure the pain, you should get the best investors. Now, if you can't, that's one thing. That speaks volumes. But if you can and you have kind of a a lead high-profile angel, then invariably they'll be able to connect you with other, other of these angels that will look to this lead angel and take their recommendation very, very seriously. So what I'll generally do next is make some introductions. I will introduce you to kind of three, four, five angels and VCs whose opinions I respect in this particular domain.
0: It's almost a form of crowdsourcing a deal. I go out, try and convince the other guys to get on board. I say, look, Rogers, you know, moderately interested in this deal. And um, if we get a couple of other guys on board, it's going to go forward. Do you, you know? Do you want to look at my stuff?
1: Um, yeah. I mean, for me, it's data collection. It's I'm showing this to other, you know, smart people who whose perspective my value, and at the same time, they're potential investors. So when looking at the syndicate as kind of a Venn diagram, they're kind of filling out the white space.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, and even in terms of VCs, what I'm kind of doing is getting perspective from the next stage financing source who can provide a sense of what things might need to be achieved before this company is suitable for venture financing. Mm-hmm. So I like, in effect, to kind of pre-sell what and who that ultimate financing source might be.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so, you know, really the network relationships and the intelligence that the entrepreneur gets by pitching the business again and again and again to these really smart people, which then sometimes will actually modify the plan and modify their thought process, is is worth more than the money I'm giving them. Yeah, so. Sure. And, and then let's say, okay... In parallel, what's happening is I'm talking to and I'm thinking about what kind of a deal makes sense, what valuation, what structure, how how big, and then my associate will also be scrubbing the financial model to make sure that again we, we get to a plan that we believe makes sense given the resources and the nature of the business. Because some businesses um, subject themselves to needing more money um, than others, so we you know we don't want to undercapitalize the business. We want to raise the right amount of capital to give it the right amount of runway to hit the right series of milestones to either say, Okay, let's raise a little bit more money, kind of be go to market capital from angels, or this really requires the two, three, four million dollars, let's position this for a proper series A. All
0: right. Which now you can do on your own since you raise all this money.
1: Um yeah, I would still bring in, I would still bring in syndicate numbers, but, yeah, I could theoretically lead.
0: Cool. Okay, um, can you talk about, so, in terms of the investing that you have done, um, now, given that you've 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 done it for five years, you've had some success, it would seem, um, it's pretty, it's kind of pretty studly, really. Like, this dude, like, just comes off Wall Street, made all this money, he's like, I'm just going to go invest in startups, and you're going to do that. It's, like, pretty excellent. I, I haven't heard, like, that many stories just like that, so... Cute, out there and doing that. Um, can you talk about how much overall you did invest in your IRR and any of that sort of stuff? Obviously, if you can't, then just tell me to shut up.
1: Um, oh, I have no idea what IRR is because, firstly, I don't compute unrealized anything, and most of my games are unrealized, right? Like, you know, my position in the Liris.com is unrealized, but it's worth a lot of money. Um, you know, I've got many investments like that, but. Uh, how much? You know, several million dollars.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, you know, in the early stage domain, you know, decent chunk of change. And you know, my, you know, my investments in my, you know, kind of core companies that have done multiple rounds of financing that are in you know rapid growth mode. You know, I put several hundred thousand dollars in.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I never start out that high, you know. My, my median is probably, um, my median is 100. But I've done 25 and I've done, you know, more.
0: Right. It would seem like 25 grand isn't a lot of money to get something going in New York City.
1: Um, mm, no, definitely not. I mean, but when I'm, I've, I, I've not done very many 25s. I've done mostly, kind of as I said, probably 100s to median 50s, probably the next most frequent. Um, And then 25, I've done a handful, and for me, 25 generally reflect businesses where I like the entrepreneur, where I like the syndicate, where I may like the technology, and I want to learn. I want to keep an eye on it. I want to get close to people. There's some other motivation besides pure financial return.
0: You bought your ticket to get in just in case, and but yeah, keep on it. Yeah,
1: exactly. It's like I'm not expecting any of those payoffs to be $25,000 in Google, but it's more strategic to me as an investor.
0: Yeah, right. Cool. Um, we're running out of time. Is there anything you want to talk about which we haven't covered?
1: Jeez, I'm exhausted. I don't know, Adrian. I think you did a pretty good job giving me a uh, long-distance barcological.
0: <laughs> I'm not even going to comment on that. <laughs> <laughs> I should say you're very good at your job. <laughs> yeah, well, I've got to ask the questions. Um, well, thank, you. thank you for being so patient and, and, and answering them all.
1: <laughs> no problem, Adrian.
0: <laughs> really appreciate your
1: time. Okay, have a good afternoon.